In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Brett Dodd. Come along as Michael Dexter and Mark Eggers talk with Brett about his career journey, past, present, and even what he sees for the future. This episode is called Simulation in Education Programs. Hello, and welcome to BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals, but most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Mark Eggers, Manager of Education Technology Services at BCN, and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Mark. It's great to be with you again. Thank you. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Brett Dodd. Michael, could you please tell us about our BCN and friend, Brett? Yeah, I can tell you all about Brett. He is a very accomplished nurse. He's the Associate Director for the Women's Guild Simulation Center for Advanced Learning at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. He spent six years in the pre-hospital environment working as a paramedic and has been a registered nurse for over 20 years. He has an associate degree in emergency medical technology, a master's degree in nursing, and recently completed his MBA. His background is emergency and flight medicine, disaster management, trauma, critical care, education, and simulation. In his current role, he coordinates, develops, and uses simulation to create highly immersive, multidisciplinary educational programs. Brett is an instructor and course director for many programs, including TNCC, ENPC, ATCN, DMEP, and PHTLS. On his off time, he enjoys spending time outdoors in the Eastern Sierras, snowboarding, mountain biking, and hiking. Brett, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here for sure. It's nice seeing everybody again. Well, we're excited to have you. And we have actually worked with you quite a bit in the past. You helped create some coursework for us. You've done a webinar, which was very um, well well put together. And I want to talk to you about that in just a little bit. Um, You're also going to be speaking for us. So we have a lot to talk about today. So again, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, we've mentioned some of your background, but can you tell us a little bit more about your career? I know you've worked with Alan Wolf. Uh, you've done a lot of various things throughout your nursing yeah. and, and, and paramedic career. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe some of the unique experiences you've had in the past? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I've worked in a lot of places. I, uh, I got into, uh, into nursing, uh, after being a paramedic with the, uh, with the thought that I just wanted to be a flight nurse. So, you know, in talking to a lot of folks that were in the uh, in flight nursing or in medicine at the time, you just had to have all this experience. So I went in with a little bit of pre-hospital experience, but, you know, there was just so much in nursing to do. So I, I actually, I, I worked at a small little hospital in, uh, in Virginia Beach for a while. And then I quickly uh, went to the level one trauma center that was uh, within the same organization. And as soon as I could, I actually started traveling and I just went to wherever I felt like I was weak. Um, I, I remember I, yeah, I get it. I got into emergency medicine like everybody else. And I was like uh, scared of peds. I was like, I don't want to take care of the kids. So, so soon after probably about two years into it, I had an opportunity to uh, take a, a travel assignment at a pediatric hospital. And I did that. And I worked you know, for a few years in peds and just went to level one trauma centers and 
you know, there's that sick patient came in the door. You know, I was always like right there at the bedside. I was like, put it in my area, please put it in my area. And uh, yeah. And then before I knew it, I was uh, at about five years, I was uh, flying uh, just a bit. I think I'd just been a nurse five years when I got my f- first flight medicine job, which uh, was in the early 2000s. And uh, it's really difficult to get into flight medicine at the time. Um, think about some of the things that some of the cool things that I got to do. I worked for a, a small company down in San Diego was my first was my first uh, flight medicine job. And I worked for a company called Aeromedivac and we worked out in the desert. And just the stuff we would, our transport times, they were so long coming out of the desert. We would be with uh, these just multi-system trauma patients for uh, an hour at least. Uh, we were flat along the border. We'd pick up people that uh, had scaled the wall and had just terrible injuries. People that were, we'd show up on scenes and there would be, you know, a dozen people, several and, and, and having heat strokes, seizing. It was, it was really uh, you know, like, a, you know, a trial by fire. I just got to go to these horrific accidents and, and learned a lot about medicine. Um, it was, uh, it was really qu- quite an experience. And one of the cool things that I got to do when I was uh, with Aeromedivac is I got to work the Baja 500 and, what we did there is we went down to the, obviously the, the race and we would, uh, there was a, a few helicopters. We'd fly down on, on, on a fixed wing because if we got a patient, what would happen is uh, there was a, a physician from Mexico in one of the uh, other aircraft and he, he or she would land and, and they would triage patients. And if there was an American citizen in there, we would be able to provide care to them. So they'd have to have their passport on because we were told who we would take care of and we would have to take care of them uh, their own scene. We'd load them into the helicopter and we'd uh, fly back to the airport in Mexico where we'd put them in one of our fixed wings and then we would fly to Brown Field. And then at Brown Field in San Diego, customs would come on. And I'm gonna tell you, I've been through customs there a few times outside of the Baja uh, uh, 500 and you'd get there and you might have somebody that's intubated, has, you know, just massive facial trauma. You're trying to, you know, keep this guy alive or this uh, girl alive until you can get, make it to the trauma center. And they do, it was after 9-11, they're gonna, they come on, they look at the passport and they look at the patient. And I'm like, there's no way you're gonna be able to tell that's them. And then they would clear you. They'd ask you a few questions then you'd have to load into an ambulance. And that was what we would do. And we'd go to the closest trauma center there. So you can just hear by something like that. Um, you know, we were with these, patients for, for a long time. Um, but yeah, so that was, uh, that was really interesting. And it was right after 9-11 that, that I was working, uh, or soon after 9-11 that I was working for them. And then uh, the one flight service I wanted to fly for was Nightingale. Nightingale is a, it's a, it's a hospital-based service, and it's out of uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And it's a really small team. Maybe they have, I want to say, seven they fly nurse paramedic and it was just, you know, hard to get into there. It was almost impossible. So even like, I remember uh, in nursing school talking to folks and they'd say, so what do you want to do with your nursing career? I say, I want to fly with Nightingale. And they're like, oh, good luck with that. I was like, you know, they're like, they never hire anybody. But uh, it was, uh, I've been working for Aeromedivac for about a year and I got a call from Nightingale to interview. And I uh, interviewed with them and uh, I wasn't successful. Uh, And then about six months later, they uh, interviewed again and I went back and I actually got hired. I was hired for them flying halftime and uh, I worked the other halftime in uh, disaster management, which kind of leads me to my next kind of 
neat thing that I did a lot of my career is uh, is as a disaster manager. So did you relocate then to Virginia or were you still yeah. going back and forth with part-time disaster management, part-time? So I did have to leave California and uh, that was a difficult conversation because my wife was in a contract, a nursing contract. And I said, hey, I'm going to pack up and go back back east to work while you're stuck out here in California. Uh, my wife's been, you know, she's obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but she's been, uh, you know, super helpful during my career and everything. She knew I wanted to fly for them. And she's from Virginia Beach as, uh, originally as well. So we were happy to do that. She did have to finish her contract out here. And then I moved out there. And you're right, I did exactly that. I flew either two to three shifts, and then I would use the other half of my time to develop a, a disaster management response. Because, you know, at the time we had some stuff we practiced for, you know, we practiced for chemical warfare a lot at that point. So we were really, you know, if you look at disaster management over the time, we've definitely, you know, practiced for different things, whether it's uh, incinerary devices. But at that time, we were really worried that there was going to be chemical warfare, different things like that. So I kind of got to take the material and some of the stuff that we had. And then I got to kind of build job action sheets, uh, get more equipment and just figure out how the hospital was going to respond. And I had come in, you know, no more really disaster experience than most of us get during our careers. So we got to do that. And then all of a sudden, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit and they came to me and I'd probably been in the position for six to eight months. And thank, thank goodness, my boss was sending me to lots of training. And they were like, hey, Brett, I need you to get a team together to go to uh, Hurricane Katrina and support outside of there. So I was like, holy smokes, you know, I got kind of thrown into this. So then uh, all of a sudden I'm figuring out what to do with a hundred people. So we had to, I had to get, you know, volunteers. I had to figure out how we were going to do these little care teams and what the best mix was. We had to figure out the vaccines we needed. And then we had to start making supply lists and the hospital was very supportive. I remember I'd like, you know, just started to build the supply. I was start just just started to build this little disaster team, and the next thing I know, you know, they called me into the office, and and you know, we have the uh, DHS, the head of DHS is on there talking about us forming a team to go down there, and the CEOs there, and they're like, yeah, uh, Brett, you can do that, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So you got voluntold for that, huh? Yeah, yeah. So that was quite an experience. And I always tell people, this is kind of what kicked off. It was more luck than anything. The day of, we we had 18 wheelers uh, full of supplies. We had porta potties. We had tents. We had buses to take us all down. We all showed up with our, you know, packs of stuff. And uh, the government canceled us. They said, you know what? We're, we're not going to need you after all. So, so after all that work, I was like, well, I got all the credit for it. And I really never had to perform. So. <laughs> Well, well, at least you were ready. At least uh, yeah. it was the, well, the thought that counts, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was uh, then, uh, you want me to keep going on uh, how I got up into flight medicine? Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting uh, twists and turns of the road. So yeah, tell yeah. me more. So then I, uh, I, was, I went up, uh, I got another uh, job. Uh, offer or I got a, I was looking to fly full time. Now I loved flying for Nightingale. You know, it was my dream job as one of my mentors had worked there. So, you know, it was great to learn, but I really wanted to fly full time. So I applied for a position that opened up and we were doing about half 911, which I was a little bit more comfortable with at the time. Uh, and then I applied for a job up at um, Washington Hospital Center. And so when I was up there, I um, 
you know, they do like 98% in our facility transports. And at the time they were doing children's national transports. They were doing, uh, you know, LVADs, they were doing Abio meds, they were doing balloon pumps. I mean, like you just got thrown into everything. The sickest of the sick patients you were going to see when you, uh, when you started uh, flying for Washington Hospital Center. And then we worked half the time in the trauma bay. And it was an interesting concept because it's kind of a standalone trauma bay. They only see like, you know, the, the worst of the worst traumas. They're not connected to the ED. And there, the flight nurses, you know, they get to intubate. They get to do needle decompressions. Uh, so did the paramedics. They got to do a lot of the skills to kind of keep them sharp when they were flying. So that was a good job. And that was my first encounter with uh, Alan Wolf, who was the uh, who was is another one of my mentors. So that's how I got into like the uh, career in flight medicine full time. And when I was up there, I worked as a, a flight nurse for about six months and then a base manager job opened and I uh, moved to manage one of their bases. And then another base manager left and I ended up managing a couple of their bases, which was a, it was a very rewarding experience. I got to learn a lot about flight medicine and my disaster, my disaster, uh, my disaster experience kind of followed me along there. And I think about this, this is a little bit of a funny story when it comes to switching shifts. There was a nurse there and she said, hey, Brad, I need to switch a shift with you. No, no big deal. So I switched a shift with her and uh, I get there and I'm in charge and uh, there's an active shooter. And it was the Navy Yard shooting. So I was uh, was in charge there and uh, we didn't get a lot of patients, but the chaos was was really there. And then just a lot of law enforcement's coming to our facility because we were getting some of the folks that came there. And, uh, you know, we had one that was uh, medevac. Uh, they lowered a basket. We had to pull them out of the basket. So we were taking care of patients from there. And I was like, man, you know, that was, that was pretty intense. And then, you know, we got through that. Um, and again, I, I, I started to form some disaster teams there and the way we start, we were going to respond to that. So, so that was all coming together. And then we kind of, we even fine tuned it a little bit of, after that we had like colored caps that we would wear and things like that to help identify us during, during things like that. And then the same nurse, like a year, maybe a year and a half later said, Hey, Brett, can you switch shifts with me? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So I was in charge then and we had a burn disaster. And so we had, we got a phone call. We were like, Hey, there's been a fire in the subway. You're going to get 22 burn patients. Uh, they said 20, I think. And uh, we had a little bit of lead time, so we were able to set up for it. But uh, then all of a sudden, uh, I was the triage uh, nurse for that. We had a, a bus pull up with uh, 22 burn patients, and we triaged them all within about two and a half minutes. Uh, and I think out of that, probably three got intubated, uh, and probably another four or five got admitted. And then during the middle of everything, we got this really bad burn from the outside. So... You know, that's some of my uh, disaster experience. And I told that nurse uh, I would never switch another shift. With <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you if you ever did that again or if that was the two was, <laughs> that enough. was it. Two was enough. That's funny. You mentioned the chaos and I've been involved in some mass casualty as well. And, and it is like no matter how much you train for it, just the chaos of what's happening and people coming up trying to help and, and you know, medical teams trying to get there. There's just so many components to any kind of mass disaster. Uh, it, it's just so difficult to, no matter how hard you train, it's so difficult to manage it once it really happens. Yeah. Uh, so, so you talk about disaster and you've talked about flight nursing and, and now you're in simulation. So how did you get from all of this clinical experience and, um, 
being being the poster child for disaster that never <laughs> that never actually panned out. But how did you go from those things into now running a simulation center and being so involved with um, education? Yeah, so that's a, a a good question. Yeah, and I was uh, so I was working in flight medicine. I really we really missed the east the uh, the west coast. So I had a chance to uh, take a uh, be a director of the ER. Uh, in downtown LA, which which I did for a while. And when I was doing that, you know, I have a passion for education. I feel like I'm, I often get into being a manager. So I have a little bit more control over the education that's being offered. So I was there and I was teaching for Cedars uh, as part of their advanced trauma life support program uh, and uh, advanced trauma care for nurses. And um, a, a job opened up over there as the trauma educator. And uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be offered that position. So I came over to Cedars and worked as the, uh, as the trauma educator. Now, Cedars is so resource heavy that you, I'm not like actually at the bedside. So I, I did a lot of coordinating courses, which led me to work with the Sim Center some. I rolled out the National Stop the Bleed program and, and did lots of different things like that. I created these educational opportunities. And then the pandemic rolled around. It was kind of a little bit of luck. I was actually a member of the special pathogens team here. I just did it since I had the, the background in disaster, disaster medicine. So I I volunteered for their team and we would do is we would practice for mainly Ebola, but, you know, monkeypox, whatever the uh, special pathogen of the, the week is. Uh, but we're able to respond to any of those. And so when the pandemic hit, you just really more luck out of anything. Everybody had to figure out what they were going to do now that you're shutting the place down. And uh, they were like, well, Brett could go to the ER. And so they didn't really need me at the time. So I offered, I went to the boss of the simulation center and I said, Hey, you know, I'm more than willing to come down here. I can help with PPE or something. So that's where they kind of repositioned me. So during the pandemic, I was actually, I was assigned to the sim center and it was dead. There was nothing going on because you couldn't do any training. So what I had to do is I had to kind of figure out what how I was going to be productive. So I started uh, doing PPE education and I didn't, I, you know, I knew the special pathogens nurses from epidemiology, but we weren't like uh, really close, but we were, you know, I kind of talked to them about, Hey, I can help with this. And, you know, it, as there was such a demand for training, uh, they were like, yeah, please, please do. And so I, you know, kept getting a little bit of information from them so I could kind of start uh, forming these classes and, and kind of quickly everything started to shift over to me and then I was doing like the main point person for the hospital for doing for doing uh PPE education now they were still assisting but they were so busy so I would just hold classes for any new physician that came on board for for nurses and for other disciplines and, and I would do neat things like they were worried about how we were going to clean instruments so we were just using something as simple as glow germ uh, which is a, like a lotion or a powder shows up under ultraviolet light. So I would get that. I would have them like the people that were cleaning the equipment. I'd have them come down. I'd put glow germ on them. I'd have them doff their equipment. We'd see where they were uh, having some contamination. And we'd kind of adjust their protocol until they could get out of their PPE without contaminating themselves. And then what we would do is we kind of, I'd go back to their manager. I'd tell them what we were able to do. They'd send down a couple other people. They'd follow that process. And boom, there was no contamination. So that's the new process that they would use. And then all of a sudden, like the OR said, hey, we need the same thing. We got to start doing cases. So we did it with the OR teams and we were able to figure out how to get rid of, uh, how, how to define their process that way. And then that expanded to like 
doing uh, mock codes, COVID codes, where we'd put GlowGerm everywhere and we'd help we'd work with the code blue committee so we could figure out how we were going to respond to COVID codes and just everything. RT, uh, all the RTs after R cause it was being taught a lot of different ways. So the educator for the, for the RTs just said, Brett, can you do all of our new higher education? So then for probably a year and a half, anybody that was hired by a respiratory therapist had to come through my PPE class and we would do it all the way up to the Pappers. And then, so then I really started working a lot with the special pathogens team. And so really what I had was this year long interview. And so it, it as it was kind of, as they were trying to refigure out what they were going to do with this sim center, they created a, a simulation education manager position. So Obviously, being down there for a full year uh, and, and showing them what I could do, what I could build programs and things like that, that worked, you know, in my favor, obviously. And then um, the special pathogens team, uh, they got some grant money. So I'm the king of split positions, apparently. So, so what the special pathogens team did is they said, hey, we have an idea. Let's have Brett work half time for the special pathogens team and half time for the simulation center which you know is a busy job, right? Anytime you're doing a split job, it's a busy job. But you know, it was really two passions of mine is like be able to work in simulation and PP, uh, the special pathogens team, they already used a lot of simulation, but they wanted to expand it. So I was able to merge those together. They offered me that position. And uh, yeah, I worked in that position for probably, I want to say about a year, year and a half. And um, we would do cool things. Like we would just, we would, train how to do it. Like if we try to figure out what we were going to do, if there was a, a, an Ebola patient that coded and, and we would just kind of start building these drills. And what we traditionally did is these four hour drills in situ, you couldn't do because the, uh, the hospital was full of pandemic, you know, COVID patients. So what we ended up doing is building out our rooms to look like the rooms upstairs. And we actually ran a 24 hour drill. And so we learned all these system problems doing that, but it was this really good uh, merger uh, where I got to use, uh, you know, the stuff I had learned in simulation throughout my career to, uh, to enhance the special pathogens team. And then, you know, as the center started to expand, as we are doing, we wanted to bring on more people. So at that point, I had to unfortunately step down from that position, but they did promote me to the associate director, and they let me hire a couple more people as we are expanding our services. And that's kind of how I got into, uh, into simulation. So was, uh, again, I feel like I've been in the right place at the right time uh, more than anything else. So is the associate director position a full-time position or is that a half-time position that you're still the king of? No, it is a full-time position. Thank, thank goodness. So uh, full-time there. I do, I do still stay as a member of the uh, special pathogens team. You know, I still teach DMAP, which is the disaster emergency, disaster management and emergency preparedness course offered by the American College of Surgeons. I'm, I still have my hand in disaster here at the hospital. We're doing, um, we're actually just bringing on the tactical emergency casualty care course, where we learn a little bit about how to offer care in uh, you know active shooter events. And then uh, I'm still active in planning disasters. We're, we're, we're planning a big disaster drill for the, um, for the uh, ER. And I've worked with like LAPD here locally and other things just to help them with, uh, you know, application of tourniquets under, you know, you know, in bad situations and things like that. So, yeah, it's full time now, and it's uh, definitely taking up uh, a lot more time as we start to expand our services, and we're trying to bring other health system, uh, 
people that are in our health system underneath our simulation umbrella. Yeah, that's really awesome. Thank you for sharing all that info. And again, if you have not already watched it, go out to the BCEN Learn page and click on webinars and watch the webinar that Brett Dodd and a few other of his coworkers presented on using simulation. It was an excellent webinar. And as I mentioned, it was very well done. You used at one point you were standing in front of the computer presenting and then at another point you uh, had somebody with a camera on a gimbal and they were following you through the simulation center so it was very interactive and and I don't want to get back into those points because I would just encourage people again to watch that but you know Brett working with simulation now and and you sound you know you're very passionate about everything you've done and and you sound very innovative as well and so considering innovation, considering all the ways that you've learned to adapt and things in the next five or 10 years, where do you see simulation going in healthcare? And, you know, there's things that are like virtual reality and and augmented reality and, and different things, but for what you're doing day in and day out, where do you see it expanding and where do you see a lot of focus really being placed on simulation? Yeah, that's a great point. There is a lot of technology out there and it's really moving fast. The thing that I can think of, like, you know, being in a, you know, multi-million dollar sim center, I think it's easy for me to think like, wow, I, is VR, is AR, is mixed reality, is that, is that what I should be doing next? But I, I really think like in the grand scheme of things, like simulation, we're so early on it and we're just not done. We're not done uh, using uh, the, the skills trainers or, or the, uh, the high fidelity simulators that we have. Um, I think about CEDARS and the hospitals that, are, that, that fall underneath us or even hospitals in the area, and most people don't have a sim lab, you know, so like to, to kind of make that jump from a sim lab to, to be from no sim lab to using VR, I, I think that's really tough right now. I think really what, what we're going to see over the next uh, few, few years, at least what I hope to see, is that uh, is it's that these partnerships start to develop between hospitals, and we start to we start to uh, leverage our buying power and share resources more. Because when I talk to people from other facilities, what we're trying to do, especially ones that are fall, fall underneath our uh, our organization, is uh, you know we tell them like come out and take a look at all the stuff we have. You know, because chances are if you want to do something we have the resources to do it. And you may not have the, the funds to buy it, or you may have the funds to buy one thing, but why not leverage all the stuff we have? So I think that, you know, as, as people can work together more, because uh, like what, we, what we've done with uh, one of our sister facilities is we go out and we set, up a, uh, we set up a pediatric sim center and just a conference room. We bought equipment over there. We bought some technical things so we could film it. Uh, we could put up a fake wall. And, and we could run the simulation in one area and educators could watch it in the other area. And we were able to do that uh, at, you know, very low cost uh, in, in comparison. And then, you know, the point is, is if they were to buy all that equipment, you're talking, you know, $60,000, $70,000 investment. But now they ran those simulations. They ran them for a week. We bought everything back. And when they're ready to run the next simulation, who knows, maybe they want to run an OB simulation. We'll bring our OB simulator over. So I see models like that as being, um, as being part of what is next, is that people are just better at sharing resources. And while, you know, about 30% of our classes have some type of a, a kind of high fidelity simulation, meaning that there's somebody back there running the mannequin, making the mannequin change its vital signs or things 
of that nature. Uh, but that leaves 70% or people are doing some type of a simulation, but it's very, or, or using simulation, but it's very, very low, like task trainer oriented because people still have to do skills days. They still have to do things like that. And there's, you know, it's overwhelming to me how many pieces of equipment there are out there. I mean, I just think about airway management, everybody, everything from that, you know, the, the, the easy to intubate head all the way up to these more realistic uh, intubation heads to uh, a mannequin. Our mannequin can tell you uh, if you have an esophageal intubation, how deep you are, what you're bagging at. So, you know, you got to find that kind of right, you got to match it with the the right piece of equipment with the right um, with the right course. So I think for one hospital to do that, it's so expensive. So I like the kind of hub and spoke model. I think it's where we're going. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and I think it's it, it would be fantastic if that could happen and, and be replicated around the country. And I've seen similar things at the hospital where I work, where you know you kind of get used to the equipment you have, and then somebody from another facility comes in and they're like, "This the stuff you train on is better than the stuff we have in our entire hospital." You know, it's just different yeah. level, and and that hospital is only an hour away. It's not like it's a big jump or, or would be a big problem to bring them in and really collaborate more. So really good yeah. point there. And, and I love VR, AR and mixed reality. And I know, Michael, we've talked about this a few times, but it's like, you know, a lot of that is coming from vendors right now. And it's, 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 pricey, it's pricey to get into. And I think that there's, there's definitely some advantage there, but I, you know, right now it's just hard to say, you know, it's hard to justify the price right now. Uh, for the amount of people that we, we can train. I think some of the things that I, you know, I always want to know is like from a standpoint of goggles, like how are we going to provide? Because, you know, I have, you know, we have 5,000 nurses, 12,000 employees. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to push enough goggles out to do something like that? Now, we've tried this on a, a smaller basis using 360 video during the pandemic. Uh, we had to push a lot of our training for residents off, cam off campus. So we, we made videos and we did it in 360, which is, is not interactive environment at all. And, you know, like the results come back, they're like, okay, they're not, you know, they're not great. They're not, um, they're not uh, terrible. They're just okay. Uh, so, but I'm sure VR, you know, as you, as you gamify this, as you can keep scores, as you can do mixed reality, there's definitely going to be more things that you can do because it's such a leap going from these kind of mannequins that, or somewhat realistic, but it, it does require a, some some suspension of disbelief to get in there and make the uh, make the uh, scenario or or, or, the, uh, or the simulation realistic. Where you know in, in VR, where it can be totally immersive or uh, augmented reality or mixed, where you can actually interact with your environment. That's big, but like I say, I just uh, I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see uh, you know where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good points. And, and again, great conversation on those. And, you know, I wanted to go back to one thing we haven't talked about. I briefly mentioned you're going to be speaking at Las, in Las Vegas at the BCN Learn Live conference. And we've talked about your healthcare career. We've talked about um, uh, all of your disaster uh, influence and now simulation. But tell us, tell the listeners a little bit more about the things that you've worked on that may, they may not be familiar with or some of the places you presented those things um, additional to your hospital and, and uh, 
helicopter work. For example, upcoming BCE and Learn Conference, you've done some coursework, but I, I believe you've also been pretty involved with the Society of Trauma Nurses, uh, the Emergency Nurses Association. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I've had lots of great opportunities uh, to, to uh, share some of the things with my fellow nurses, which I really love doing. Last year, I was able to work on, obviously, the two BCEN modules. The first was on chest trauma and managing chest drainage systems, which I really like. Um, you know, it's just a passion of mine using simula simulators to do that. And the second one was on uh, chest trauma. And of course, these were a lot of fun to do. It was it was fun working with you and the BCEN team and just watching how they make these ideas come to life in, in, in an online format. Um, and especially since I use simulation to help, you know, clinicians feel a lot more comfortable with trauma and, and, and life-threatening situations. Some of the other things I've worked on, though, I was lucky enough to be an editor for the uh, last edition of the Advanced Trauma Care for Nurses book. Um, I did the webinar uh, on using simulation to transform education in the ED, and I was able to work with two of the um, two of the ED nurses, uh, Priscilla and Mary Ann, on that, which was great. And I listened to Alan's webinar, and it's you know it's funny because you know Alan talked a little bit about you know mentoring people to speak at a national level, and it's you know he, that's the way I was able to you know Alan took me under his wing and. and and help me be comfortable at speaking at a national level. And now I'm just trying to pay that forward. And, and Marianne and Priscilla are going to be speaking with me at the ENA conference uh, and at the uh, BCEN Live. So we're excited about that. And then um, other things I've worked on, the Society of Trauma Nurses uh, e-library lecture, I got to revise their shock lecture. Um, and that was a lot of fun to do with shocks. Uh, you know, I love uh, teaching about shock. And so it was a lot of fun being able to do that, to do the revision to that. And then uh, they took a lot of the stuff that I, I did in the revised lecture and they just trans, transferred that over to the new TCRN review uh, book, which I'm, you know, I'm always happy to help my fellow uh, nurses uh, advance, get, get specialty certifications. I actually also wrote a couple of questions in Scott DeBoer's uh, book, uh, his review book for the for the uh, pediatric advanced certification. So I was happy to work with him as well. And then locally, I've just been working on things like we did, a, we were making an unconscious bias simulation, working with our diversity, equity, and inclusion team. And yeah, I'm always staying busy with something. Wow, sounds really diverse. And so, you know, with, with all of the different aspects, I, I often like to ask people about why it's important to be a lifelong learner. And, you know, I'm sure you could, you could give us some great, um, tips there, but it also sounds like every time a door opens, you just jump into it. Like, it doesn't <laughs> sound like you ever say no to anything. So, yeah. so for you, um, you know, I do want to know about your, your thoughts on lifelong learning, but I also was just curious in that whole conversation on, on what is it like for somebody like you to constantly say yes and constantly look for new opportunities? Yeah, I agree. It's constantly saying yes is probably uh, not the best thing, <laughs> but I definitely, it keeps me busy, but every once in a while, I do have to step back and uh, I keep saying I'm going to be better at saying no, but I've been saying that for the last 30 years. So I don't, we'll, we'll say it. it should be soon. I'd be, I'll be better at that. But you know, the thing is, I think is I really love what I do and, and medicine is changing fast. And as we gather more evidence, how we deliver care is changing. And, you know, and the people coming into medicine, whether it be residents, nurses, RTs, even people that are in non-clinical roles. I mean, I can use simulation to make their career better, to 
to help them provide better care. And, you know, I'm getting older. These are the folks that are going to be taking care of me. So I want to make sure they're well-trained. And, and I think in simulation, you know, technology changes. So I have to be able to keep up with, with what's uh, there to help maximize the programs we offer, but also the right thing. Like, you know, Cedars, uh, I'm lucky enough uh, to have Cedars and, and my boss to entrust me with lots of funding to explore different things. So I wanna make sure that I'm using that, that funding wisely to maximize the, the benefit that we all get. Cause you know, we have to learn one is our role to take care of our, patient, our patients, uh, but also as we take on new roles within the organization, we usually find new weaknesses. And, and that's happened to me. You know, I take on something and all of a sudden I find that, boy, I have to learn a new skill in order to maximize what is expected of me from this job. Um, so that's a big reason why I went back for my MBA program. And I think that lifelong learning just helps us improve as individuals and it helps our departments and it helps our organizations. And I think as these new clinicians or new people that enter into healthcare, they're gonna be looking to us for guidance. So we need to be good mentors as well as encourage people to get involved with local and national organizations like the BCEN to take advantage of all that stuff that that they offer. Like, in other words, I, you know, I, I really love when I see nurses that are being proactive. They're not saying, hey, what courses are you going to pay for me to go to? They're out there, uh, you know, looking for new opportunities to learn to make themselves better clinicians. Exactly. And, um, yeah, exactly. And as leaders, I think we need to promote and encourage uh, and reward specialty certifications. And as you know, I, I have an, uh, an odd amount of specialty certifications. I hold eight specialty certifications. My oldest one was the CEN, which was in 2003. Uh, but I'm going to tell you that that happened because of one of my mentors. My first uh, mentor was Margaret Armstrong. That was the person that oriented me day one as a nurse. And, you know, she just encouraged me to uh, get involved with ENA. And uh, probably from my first week, she started to encourage me to start thinking about my CEN, to start studying for that. So I, I did that. And it kind of set the kind of grounds for the way I look at specialty certifications. And then uh, when I got hired into my first flight nurse position, uh, actually before that, I actually got my C CCRN. I got that because I was going up to the ICU a lot and the ICU nurses were hammering me with questions. And I was like, man, this is stuff I don't know. So I said, um, I'm going to go and I'm going to start studying for my CCRN. And I actually uh, was able to achieve my CCRN uh, soon after I got my CE in, and I was actually the first, <laughs> I don't think there was any nurses in the ICU that were even CCR and certified at the time, wow, but it helped me. Awesome. Yeah, it was a small, it was a small uh, e ER for sure, but it helped me uh, when I was talking to them to be able to say, look, I do have a critical care patient. Now I'm going to turn them over to you and I can speak the, their language. I got into flight medicine, so I got my CFRN. Uh, um, you know, I'm a state faculty for EMPC. I've worked peds and I teach a lot of pediatric classes. So obviously to just kind of show that I am an expert in that area, I got my, uh, my CPIM uh, and, and, and uh, that was one of the other ones I got trauma. I got my TCRM because I was, uh, you know, I uh, worked in, as a trauma educator and I also have a passion about trauma. Um, so I, I took that in the beta version. Uh, which was the was a really easy version, I thought. I think it's a little bit tougher now. And then my uh, original master's in um, nursing was in leadership. And I uh, actually at my MBA, I have a um, concentration on organizational change. So obviously the certified uh, 
nurse manager leader was uh, just made sense for me to get. And then simulation, I had the the uh, special two specialty certifications, one in operation side and one is an educator. And so that's how I ended up with all eight of them. And because and each one meant so much to me, I just don't like to let them go. I just like to keep them because I feel like each one is a little piece of me. Yeah, well, it's a huge milestone. Every every certification is a big milestone in the whole nursing journey. And so, yeah, to to let it go after all the work that goes into achieving it, it's it's tough to do. So I completely understand that. Well, Brett, I really appreciate all of the great conversation. I'm going to turn it over to Mark. He has some questions as well. And really, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you for all your insight as well. Uh, and Mark, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate that. You know, all the stuff I've heard here, Brett, today and all the stuff you've been through in your career and just so many things. It's so impressive. And there's so much. You've packed in a lot in your life. Let me tell you, you've packed a lot. But uh can you tell me about a person or a moment in your career that comes to mind that greatly impacted you? Can you think of just one or a few? Or Yeah, I mean, I just had so many people help guide me along the way. I talked about Margaret uh, Armstrong, who's my first preceptor, uh, Janice McKay, who encouraged me to get the experience I needed in flight medicine. Uh, you know, she helped me even before I got to Nightingale, just letting me know what I needed to do. And she also helped me just kind of understand the importance of continuing education to always be learning. And then, you know, I've talked a little bit about Alan, you know, he helped me uh, to be able to share information with others to get others involved in a national level. So he's just helping me pay it forward. And my current boss, you know, it's just great. He's, he's just helped me realize that I'm an operations guy. He's a vision guy. And I love working with him because I get to operationalize so many different things. So I think that yeah, those are, those are uh, you know, so many people. And then, uh, you know, being part of national organizations, Kelly McNeil Jones was another mentor of mine that just helped me be able to, uh, you know, be, you know, understand uh, how to take a passion and turn it into a plan. So, yeah, I've just been, I always tell people I've, I've really been more lucky than anything else in my career. I've just had people that really have helped me a lot. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Now, uh, here's one in We'll see. What would you be doing if you were not in your current role? So if you weren't in nursing or healthcare, is there something else you thought about way back then before you got into this? Yeah. You know what? I, I think I, I love operations. So I'd be happy doing anything where I could take an idea and, and work with the team to make that idea come to life. So I, I guess if I couldn't do uh, what I do now, I'd probably go back to school for project management or something like that. Excellent. Great. Super. And now I'm going to ask you about some favorites. So uh, do you have a favorite book? Uh, yeah, let's see. I probably have, if I had to, I probably have two. Uh, one of them is called The One Thing. Uh, and it's how to uh, uh, just kind of get lots of things done um, or, or where to start when you have lots of things to do. And the other one is The Tipping Point. It's just a little bit about how we make decisions. That's a pretty popular book. Yeah, it's a good there. book. Excellent. And how about a favorite movie? Uh, let's see. I love watching uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I probably, I probably watch that about once a year. Just to, to, it's, it's just a funny movie to me. It is a good movie. That was a sleeper movie. You know, I watched yeah. it. I was like, this is a really good movie. Yeah, yeah. 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 And how about a favorite song? Uh, I'm a big Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. So probably Scar Tissue by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which I'm going to see here in a few days here in Los Angeles. Excellent. Great. And how about a comfort food or meal that you enjoy? 
uh, it's got to be tacos. Living in LA, the tacos are amazing here. So me and my wife are always trying to find a new taco joint. I think every time you hear LA, you hear street tacos in the same conversation. It gets brought up at least one time. Yeah, it's so funny. You know what? I have to. Me and my wife are so addicted to tacos. When I go out of town, we have to eat tacos right before we leave, and then our first meal back is tacos again. And today's Tuesday. I wonder if it's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And and how about a since you don't have any of these, but do you have any hobbies or interests? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at work. No, I do love being outdoors. We have a place in the Eastern Sierras. And uh, when I'm not at work, I, I really just head out to the mountains just to be outside. I love snowboarding, hiking, mountain biking, really anything uh, outside. And I just bought a, a Jeep uh, with some big uh, tires, which they, it doesn't get around LA much. But once I get into the mountains, I just bring that uh off-road and exploring and just get out in the middle of nowhere. Excellent. Super good. And if, if people would like to follow you online, social media platforms that uh, understand LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. Under Brett Dodd. I'm on any social media platform I'm on. I, I, I don't hide. It's always Brett Dodd. Gotcha. Excellent. Well, super. Well, I want to take this time to thank you, Brett, for joining us on this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you for sharing your time, your stories, Great information. Just uh, I, thank you for the journey that you took us on today. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it was excellent. Thank you, Brett. Great. It's always a pleasure. And to all our listeners, we hope you'll stay tuned as we continue on with BCN and Friends and bring you new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Mark Eggers here with Michael Dexter. On behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time.